0: Dot .com slash thrive for 20% off your first order.
1: I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, hello, lovely listeners. I hope you are all doing wonderfully today. I am here, as usual, to bring you lots and lots of news topics for the week. It has been quite a doozy, as it normally is. But I wanted to start today out on a fairly sad note. Um, If you've been a listener for a long time, you know that Keegan and I would always try to start the news episodes with the most devastating first. And I am going to continue that tradition as I think it's kind of an easier way to take some of this news. I'm sure a lot of you are aware, have either seen this on social media or have seen this on the news On January 7th, a six-year-old boy was taken into police custody after shooting his teacher at Richneck Elementary School in Newport, Virginia. Authorities have said that it was a female teacher who was shot, and one officer added this was not an accidental shooting, which is mind-blowing to me to imagine a young child going through the number of steps that it takes to go through a shooting, and to intentionally pull out a gun and to shoot their teacher is something that is very unfathomable for me to think about. And I'm going to be speaking about this throughout this topic, but I always think about how vulnerable children are and how malleable they are. So I think of what that child must be going through in their lives in order to get to a point where they have access to a firearm, where they would want to bring it to school and then use it. I know that children, you know, their frontal lobe is not fully formed yet, and they cannot make the same sort of intentional decisions that adults do, which is really going to make prosecuting this crime very difficult. Again, something that I'm going to be speaking about throughout this topic, but it's something that truly boggles the mind to imagine Someone so young and so innocent and vulnerable going through something that is so unbelievably heinous and dark, those two things just don't equate in my mind. Before I go any further, I do want to say that this teacher luckily did survive the shooting, Her name is Abby Werner, and she is 25 years old. She was providing instruction in class and police have stated that there was no physical struggle should not be protecting their students from life and death situations in the classroom that shouldn't be on a teacher's mind. What should be on their mind is educating these children and not keeping them safe from a shooter, someone who could even be their own classmate. The six-year-old perpetrator was taken into police custody, and he is now receiving treatment at a medical facility under an emergency court order. From there, a judge will determine if this is going to be a temporary detention order or what the next steps will be if it isn't. The big question with authorities right now is how do you prosecute a crime committed by a first grader? The shooter and most of the witnesses are so young that police are working alongside the juvenile system specialists, child psychologists, and child protective services to ensure that the investigation is conducted with care. I am so thankful for this, particularly for the 16 to 20 other students who witnessed such a traumatizing event at such a young age. I hope that they are all receiving immediate therapy, help, counseling, love, whatever it is that, you know, the families decide to do. I hope that they are receiving that help and they are getting the resources that they need in order to begin to heal themselves. So the big question for authorities right now is how do you prosecute a crime committed by a first grader? Like I mentioned earlier with a child this young, they don't have the intellectual capacity to understand how to form intent to commit a crime such as this. There is a legal doctrine called the infancy defense, which protects children from criminal prosecution. Also, a defendant must be found competent to stand trial, as is case for all trials, which will be very difficult to determine on a six-year-old. Instead, they may pursue what is called the, quote, child in need of services petition, which would allow a court to order social services, including counseling for the child. Thank goodness, because I think all parties definitely need all the support in the world right now. However, the children's parents could face liability. The firearm used in the shooting was a 9mm Taurus handgun, which had been legally purchased by the child's mother. The gun was stored in the family home, though the police declined to give further details regarding how securely the gun was stored away. The child had obtained the gun from his home, put it in his backpack, And headed off to school like it was any normal day. The K-12 school shooting database, which has tracked U.S. shootings on school grounds since 1970. I'm pretty sure I mentioned them quite a lot in the mass shootings episode that I did recently. They say that shootings by a child on campus is extremely rare. The founder of the database, David Reedman, said that this is the 17th shooting by someone under 10 years of age in a school, and 17 still seems too high to be rare to me. That's just how prevalent this situation is. Since 1970, more than 200 employees have been shot on school properties, which includes 167 teachers, 44 principals, 44 vice principals or assistant principals, 59 other staff members, and 18 school bus drivers. David also compared this tragedy to another from 2000, where a six-year-old fatally shot a classmate named Kayla Roland as their teacher lined the children up for a trip to the library. Overall, this is a devastating story all around. To have a gun so accessible to a child is unthinkable to me, and I'm glad that these parents will be held responsible for their poor gun ownership. And it's just so rare to hear of a child hurting an adult in this way, and I just can't help but think, why... Why the teacher? Why this teacher? Who is this child? What was his home life like? And how did this teacher interact with him? What would make him choose this teacher as a target? I see this as an enormous cry for help, and I hope that all of the victims involved and the young defendant get the mental health support that they need to see it through this tragic event. Because I think especially with young kids that do these really heinous crimes, I think that there is so much opportunity for healing and for them to go on to live very productive lives if there's intervention when they're still young and they're able to get the the help that they truly do need so that they can go on to be successful children and then go on to be successful members of society as adults. There's this teacher that I love who I follow on Instagram with the account Mr. Williams Breck and I think he puts it perfectly so I'm going to play the audio now.
0: Don't ask again why educators are leaving this profession. You've banned our classroom books. You told us what we could and could not teach within our classrooms. You underpaid and undervalued us. And then you made part of our job description without any training at all to stop bullets this is what happens when teachers try to talk to their administrators about a child in crisis and they're ignored this is what happens when parents don't want to partner with their child's teacher and instead go home and talk shit about them in front of their kids relentlessly this is what happens when an entire country loses all appreciation for teachers i used to love teaching and be in the classroom but i'm gonna be honest that's quickly fading and i love my students but i will not love my students to death
1: Okay, moving on to something a little bit less heavy, let's get into some politics. There was finally a resolution to the election for the Speaker of the House. After 15 rounds of voting last week, the GOP finally decided on Kevin McCarthy as the new Republican Majority House Speaker after four days of a circus of an election. One of the most memorable images from the whole election was of Mike Rogers being physically restrained from kicking the ass of Matt Gaetz after Gaetz ensured McCarthy's 14th failure to get the vote. And what's so funny about all of this is that it isn't like it's two members of Congress from opposing sides going at it, but two very conservative Republicans fighting amongst each other. Jim Jordan defended the physical altercation by saying, sometimes democracy is messy, but I would argue that's how the founding fathers intended it huh? Can you imagine like Alexander Hamilton and George Washington and James Madison like getting into an actual brawl? I mean, honestly, with Alexander Hamilton, it wouldn't have surprised me if he got into an actual brawl, seeing as he did die in a duel. But still, I don't really think that the founding fathers intended for there to be a a knockout drag down fight or however you say it on the House floor in 2023. Just, you know, just a thought. Rogers, on the other hand, apologized to Gates and tweeted, At Rep Matt Gates and I have had a long and productive working relationship that I am sure will continue. I regret that I briefly lost my temper on the house floor Friday evening and appreciate Matt's kind understanding. Some Republicans have tried to downplay the incident as people have been using this confrontation as a reason that the GOP isn't fit to lead the way it is right now, especially with such a slim majority. Even the new majority speaker McCarthy was asked about it and evaded the question by being like, oh, nothing, it's nothing. And I think this whole display was a great representation of what is happening within the GOP right now. They're fighting amongst themselves, no one is backing down, and the party is filled with people who, frankly, don't know how to behave themselves appropriately, and it's embarrassing. This incident looked like a scuffle between children on the playground or a fight in a hockey game, not like leaders of our country conducting an election. All right, I've got one more political topic for you, but really quick, we're going to take a little commercial break.
0: Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King
1: of the Egg Cream.
0: So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: All right, I'm back. So moving on to a little bit more stuff in politics. Breaking news, at least on my end here on Thursday morning. And this one is a bad look. Though Biden and other Democrats have been griping about the fact that Trump was hiding hundreds of confidential documents in his Mar-a-Lago home, Joe Biden himself now has come under fire for having classified documents from his time as vice president in his possession. This all began back in November when classified documents were discovered in Biden's former office, which set off alarm bells in the White House, where only a small number of advisors and lawyers were made aware of the situation. From there, they searched Biden's homes in Wilmington and Rehoboth, Delaware, where documents were located in a locked garage at the home in Wilmington. Nothing was discovered in the Rehoboth home. The place in Wilmington is described as a, quote, wealthy wooded enclave on a lake, and he allegedly spends many weekends at this home. The aides that discovered these documents then notified the National Archives, who then alerted the Department of Justice, which is protocol for this type of thing. Biden spoke for himself on Thursday, justifying the fact that the documents were in a, quote, locked garage, implying, I guess, that they were totally safe, and also made a point to say that he was cooperating fully with the Department of Justice. Honey, they were not safe in that locked garage. Don't be trying to fool me like that. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre refused to answer multiple questions on Wednesday, stating the reason being the ongoing investigation the questions many people want answered are who brought the materials to Biden's home and what is contained in these documents to explain what we know so far about the Biden investigation. Let's compare and contrast his to Trump's to give full context for the next part of this story. So I made a little table here in Biden's investigation. More than 10 documents were found in Trump's investigation. More than 325 documents were found. For Biden, they were found in a private office in D.C. and in his home in Wilmington. For Trump, they were found at his Mar-a-Lago residence and office. For Biden, there were some, quote, top secret documents. For Trump, there were 60, quote, top secret documents. Biden says he is cooperating fully while Trump is under investigation for corruption. Biden lawyers found and alerted the archives, which is proper protocol. But in Trump's investigation, archives had to reach out to his lawyers. The 10 classified documents included U.S. intelligence materials and briefing memos about Ukraine, Iran, and the U.K. Apparently, some of these were top secret at the highest level. Conservative Republicans are pointing out the obvious truth, that Biden is a hypocrite. But the crimes certainly aren't to the same severity. Us rational people can acknowledge this and still see that Biden fucked up big time, but Republicans see this as an opening. They can say that Trump is being treated unfairly compared to Biden, which some have already begun to do. And the now Republican majority House is already moving to begin an investigative machine designed to prove their long-held theory that Democrats have weaponized the federal government and intelligence agencies against conservatives. I can't wait to see how that one turns out. All in all, this is just fucking embarrassing. Biden has been a big part of the Trump investigation, as he is our current president, and should know better than to keep any sort of official documents amongst his personal belongings. That's just stupid, especially when you know someone is currently being investigated. If I were him, I'd be like, oh shit, I think I have a couple papers in my Wilmington house. Maybe I should do something about that before I get caught and go through the same thing. He's also given pro-Trump conservatives even more ammo to go after him and the party. And it wouldn't surprise me if they would start pushing for Biden's impeachment. It it wouldn't surprise me, tit for tat, you know? Is anyone else absolutely terrified of the next upcoming presidential election? All right, that's all I have for you today as far as the news topics go. But I have an unbelievably exciting announcement to make. For those of you who follow the show on Instagram, you might have already seen a little sneak peek of this. But starting in February, particularly on February 8th, your Angry Neighborhood Feminist's first ever Patreon episode will be uploaded. Every month, I'm going to read a different book that I'm going to share with all of you. In the meantime, you're going to be able to write into me, let me know what you're thinking of the book, talk about your feelings, any questions you have, anything you want me to talk about in particular, so on and so forth, so that it really can be a book club rather than me reading a book on my own and then recapping it to you all. This Feminist Book Club tier will be at the $5 level on Patreon, and by the end of January, that website will be up and running so that you can make sure that you subscribe ahead of time to the $5 level so you can be a part of the book club. In the meantime, be sure to follow the Instagram page at Angry Neighborhood Feminist because that's where I will most likely be posting any updates on the book club and things like that. The other day, I posted on my story The book that I will be reading for the first episodes, and that is Barracoon, the story of the last, quote, black cargo. It is based on the author's interviews from 1927 with the subject of the book, Cujo Lewis, who at the time was the last presumed living survivor of the Middle Passage. Kujo, whose African name was Kusala, was a passenger on what is thought to be the last ever known quote-unquote slave ship to go from Africa to the United States, arriving at Mobile Bay, Alabama in autumn of 1859 or July 9, 1860, with 110 African men, women, and children. I'm about halfway through the book so far, and I am really, really enjoying it. Special shout out to my future sister-in-law, Haley Ram, for uh, having it sitting out when I was over at her place celebrating New Year's this year. I started reading the introduction and everything then, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. I have to start the book club, and this is going to be the first book, and it is not disappointing. If you're looking to purchase the book so you can read along with me, I'll have a couple links in the show notes of some ideas of places that you can go and find it. If you have any questions or comments or anything about all of this, please feel free to get in touch with me. That is everything that I have for you today. If there are any topics that you would like for me to cover in the future, please reach out to me via email at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or through Instagram at angry neighborhoodfeminist. You can direct message me there. If you enjoy the show and think others would too, it would mean so much to me for you to go over to the Apple Podcasts app and leave a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. You can also rate it on Spotify. All right, that's all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye!